0: I love your podcast, this
1: is the Gold. This is where it's at. What's up? It's a Gold fam. Happy Monday. Hope you all had an amazing weekend and are getting ready for a great week. Today, my guest is author, public speaker, philanthropist, and endurance athlete, David Richmond. David's mission is to form more meaningful human connections through storytelling. His first book, Winning in the Middle of the Pack, discussed how to get more out of ourselves than ever imagined. With Cycle of Lives, David shares the interconnected stories of people overcoming trauma and delves deeply into their emotional journeys with cancer. I love this episode so much. Tons of bits of gold. We dive into life after loss, how to navigate after loss, his latest book, Cycle of Lives, and some of his own experiences as an endurance athlete. With that, enjoy. David, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today.
0: Totally, damn God glad we figured it out. We got together
1: and we're able to talk. Well, yeah, we, we made it work. We made it work. Well, I'm really pumped you reached out. I know a lot of my show, the theme of loss, tragedy, coming back on the other side of it, really resonated with you. Mm-hmm. So just excited to have you on today. Maybe just to kick it off, you can give our audience a little bit of uh, the background on Cycle of Lives, the book you wrote, and a little bit about your story.
0: Oh, sure. So thanks. I appreciate it. So a little bit about the story is basically that the impetus for this book, and it's my latest book that's come out, um, was centered around like what happened after I lost my sister to brain cancer. And there's a lot of dynamics that came about at the time that she told me about her diagnosis. I was going through my own uh, problems and trying to get out of a horrible personal situation. And I was kind of going through a discovering my new me or whatever, and kind of transforming from being like completely like not active to becoming like an endurance athlete. Right. So I really, in my late thirties, really started to morph into a different person. And June telling me that she had brain cancer kind of came along at the time when I was doing that. So I, I was kind of in this, I don't know, this mode of searching for answers and, trying to take a little deeper look at things. And it was just a more contemplative and transformative time in my life. And when she passed away, um, one of the things that I noticed was that as I interacted with people and I watched people interact, and then I purposefully kind of tried to start conversations about the emotional side of the cancer, I found that super common theme, Dan, which was everybody, every single person I talked to, Either hadn't processed the emotions of cancer, or if they had processed it, they didn't have, or they didn't feel they had a safe space to talk about the emotions, or they didn't know how to talk about it. You know, like they don't want to burden people, or they didn't want to make people feel guilty, or they just, they don't want to bring attention to themselves, or they don't want to complain, or whatever the reasons were. When it came to the emotional side, there was this big gap. And I wanted to, See if I could try to figure out how to solve that little gap, how to fill it in so that we could interact with each other on a more meaningful basis.
1: So the book that you wrote, it's 15 people's individual stories. Yes. Not everyone has cancer or they're all just involved in different capacities.
0: No. So what I did when I started paying attention to this dynamic of this like kind of void around the emotional side of it, I noticed that it was that way with doctors, nurses, loved ones, survivors, patients, if you lost a spouse, I mean, parents wouldn't talk to their kids, kids wouldn't talk to the parents, you know, they would talk, but just not about the heavy emotional stuff. And so I said to myself, what if I were to put together the widest range of cancers, right? Because I want to tell one type of cancer, because everybody has brain cancer, has one experience, everybody has breast cancer, kind of has a different set of experiences, right? So I wanted a range of cancer, a range of severity, all the way from the fear of cancer to having had cancer five different times, five different cancers over a 35 year period. So range, I wanted young, middle, old, you name it. I wanted survivor, doctor, patient, caregiver, whatever. And then most importantly is I wanted a range of emotions that were associated with their cancer journey that were affected by the traumas in their life. So in other words, If somebody was reluctant to talk about their emotion of cancer, so let's just say they they were fearful, okay? And they were reluctant to talk about their fear. Were they reluctant to talk about their fear because they had been abandoned as a child and they felt like they never had a safe space? Were they reluctant to talk about their fear because they were the alpha of their family and they don't ever want to show weakness? What were the, the factors that affected their ability or inability or willingness or unwillingness to go down that emotional road. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. What would you say was the thing that was most consistent amongst the 15 people? Also, do you think you can share like who the 15 people were, or at least their their role as it relates to the book?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, two great questions. So the thing that was common was they all had this kind of, yeah, I've never talked about this stuff. Or if I have dealt with even if I have dealt with it I haven't talked about it some hadn't even dealt with the emotional side right they could go through where am I going to get my next PET scan how can you help me navigate work you know how am I going to talk to my kids about school and these kind of tasks things they could deal with but the actual deep emotional stuff like you know that that was something they they didn't talk about so that was kind of with everybody the other thing that was with everybody is there was some Sense of isolation. Either they self isolated or they were purposefully, or maybe not even purposefully, isolated because people didn't know how to deal with them about those emotional issues. Right. So that was the common theme. And honestly, it took me a long time to find a wide range of people that also had interesting, evocative, moving, inspiring, you know, really, really intense stories. So it took me a while, right, to get the right mix of people.
1: How did you choose the 15 people?
0: So I found some of them through asking friends, right? I would talk about the project and then people would go, oh, you got to talk to so-and-so. I call co-called cancer centers. I co-called hospitals. I co-called radiation therapy places. I just said, hey, I, I'm doing this project. Who do you know? And then I asked friends, hey, who do you know? So I was able to find people that way, but I've got like, A woman who became a a pediatric oncology nurse based out of an experience of being a six year old girl watching her dad die of cancer. Okay. I've got a lady who was an oncologist at NYU for 40 years. I've got the chief medical officer of a California health plan and how the very first patient he had as a doctor who had brain cancer affected his entire life's work and trying to look out for the little guy. I have. A woman who like I mentioned five different cancers over 35 year period but her story is about a four year abusive relationship that she finally was able to escape from I've got people that lost children people that lost a loved one I've got a great story about uh, this one guy Bobby who you know is like this this not emotional kind of very womanizing dude who finally finds the love of his life changes him completely. Shortly thereafter, they get married. Shortly thereafter, she dies of breast cancer. Uh, well, maybe she died of different cancers, but it had metastasized, started his breast cancer. But his story is about how he was able to get past that and find the love of his life, who he's married to now. And how how could you lose the love of your life and still feel like you found the love of your life, right? Mm. So just wide range of people with amazing, interesting stories.
1: I guess in each of those individual stories, it looks sort of back at their life prior to being diagnosed with cancer and their Mm -hmm. life sort of as a result after.
0: Yeah. So when I first wrote the book, I wrote it as me kind of talking to them and uncovering things. And then I kind of would do this arc of what happened in their childhood and whatever. And then after I finished the book, I sent it off to my editor and she said, oh my God, this is complete crap. It's terrible. I'm not feeling anything for these people because you're in their stories and you're not part of their story. Get yourself out of their stories. So I went, oh, that makes sense. So I then changed it from my interaction with them to just first person from them. So basically I pick up the story by setting the scene of their childhood, the traumas that affected them. One was I started out when when her and her family were on the last one of the last three barges to leave Saigon the night that Saigon fell. Okay, another one started when the little boy was six years old and he came home from school, uh, was dropped off to run into his house and go up and see his mom. And she was in the pool of blood, had killed herself in the bathtub. He found her. That's where that story started. Um, Another story started with uh, somebody being wheeled into surgery to remove a sarcoma. And the girlfriend saying, hey, this is not my life. I'm out of here. You're on your own, bud. Right? Just so I try to set the scene for kind of who this person is. Can we identify with them as a person? Can I feel for them as a person? Can I understand things that we all go through? Because I might not have cancer, but I maybe can understand what it's like to be addicted to drugs or to be abused or to have abandonment from a parent. I might be able to do that. So I wanted the reader to be able to identify and feel for the person. And then they could maybe understand what they went through on the emotional side through their cancer journey from all those different perspectives we just talked about, so that I can then maybe better understand what people might be going through. So I can relate to them better.
1: Mm. What would you say was the most surprising thing in having these conversations and, you know, meeting the 15 people that become the book?
0: I actually guessed that most of the people would have said to me something like, "Geez, I've never talked about this stuff before." I would have guessed that, that that was going to be a common theme. But I was kind of blown away by the fact that every single one had that as a backdrop. Every single one. Let me tell you a super quick story. Right, this is indicative of everybody that I ran into. So I'm on this bike ride because I go on this bike ride to connect all the people. Right, so I go on like forty-seven hundred miles solo bike ride after I've talked to them for a couple of years.
1: That's how you met all of everyone that you were interviewing?
0: In person. That's how I met them in person. I had been talking to them on the phone for a couple of years, but most of them I hadn't met in person. So I thought, what better way to connect them than to get on my bike and connect (laughs) stories, right? Then that gave me a time to contemplate my own sister's death. That gave me time to contemplate the stories, meet people along the way, like, I just thought it was a good backdrop for the book and double entendre, right? Cycle of lives. So I cycle to them. It's just this whole thing, right? So I'm in New Mexico and I sit down for a bunch with this big, huge Mexican family. And the dad, who's like 80s, pulls me over and he said, hey, this is such a good thing you're doing, you know, talking about the emotional part, man. People just don't do that. I went through my cancer like 12 years ago and it's such an important thing blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, that's cool. Then his daughter, who's like a 50-year-old woman, pulls me over and she's like, oh my God, dude, this book with the emotion, it's just fantastic. It's such a great thing. I had uh, stage three breast cancer, double mastectomy, went and got taken care of. And I'm now a lobbyist for patient's rights. I used to be a nurse, but now I'm a lobbyist for patient's rights. And this, this idea of, of giving people the tools to talk about the emotion is so important. So I finished the brunch right then and I go, Listen, not everybody's like you guys. Not everybody talks about it. And they both kind of look away and I go, What? Uh, you guys don't talk? And he, the dad looks at me and he goes, Dude, he goes, I'm old school Mexican. I'm not going to burden my family with a bunch of sappy emotional stuff, but I, they need <laughs> to know. But I don't. And then I look at the daughter and I go, But dude, you just told me how important it was. And she goes, I, I did. But look, man, I, th- I knew my dad went through cancer. But I wasn't going to talk to him about my cancer because it would make him feel guilty. Like maybe maybe he's going to lose a daughter. You know, I did not want to make him feel bad about what he went through and maybe he didn't talk to me, so I shouldn't talk to him. And I go, but look how important you think it is. And they go, it is important. We just didn't do it. Mm. So every single story was like that. So I just knew when I was doing the bike ride and I was meeting people along the way, every day I had dozens of stories that I, st- I would stop and talk to people. Not every day, but... Every day, at least a story or two, sometimes many, many stories if I stopped to talk to enough people. And that was a very common theme, like, God, my girlfriend at work just told me her son has cancer.
1: What do I say? Hmm. Why do you think it's so hard for people to talk about? Goes without saying it. It's hard on all facets, without a mm-hmm. doubt. You know, It's hard to tell someone, I imagine I have cancer. It's hard to tell someone I'm not doing well. Those are obviously difficult conversations, but why do you think it is so difficult to, you know, openly speak about those things?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know the answer. I'm going to, I'm going to give you my answer, but you, (laughs) your camp, your experience camps with dealing with, with kids that have lost a a parent at a young age, what do you say? Right. You don't want to sound like an idiot. You don't want to make them feel bad. You don't want to let them know how happy you are with your parents then that's just going to make them feel bad because they lost. I mean, there's a million reasons why you sit there and go, I don't know what the hell to say.
1: Yeah. Right? What about the people who actually are the ones who are sick?
0: Yeah. Well, that is if there's any very few positive things about cancer, that's kind of one of the things that is a positive thing is that when people are sick, you at least have the opportunity to engage them in conversations about heavy subjects that might be important for you to talk about. Yeah. You know? You lose a parent or a sibling or a loved one to an accident, it's just ripped out of your life and there's no closure on any level in so many areas. It's so tragic. At least when somebody has an ongoing illness that might result in their death, at least that gives you a chance to say, you know how much I love you. You know, I know you're scared. I could be here for you. So what do you want your legacy to be? How can I help you? Is there anything that, that you need? You could talk about stuff like that, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. How long was your sister sick for? About four years. Yeah, about four years or so. Was she open to speaking while she was sick about how she was doing, how she was feeling, what she wanted in life for you and Mm -hmm. and your family?
0: Yeah, I felt very fortunate that she did, right? Because I think it would have been easy for me to not go there. Like, for example, Dan, when I would call her up and I go, hey, June, how's it going? And then I go, oh, you're an idiot. What do you mean? How's it going? She probably just got back from chemo. She's getting ready to die. She's, you know, maybe looking at her kids, you know, with all kinds of regret. And you're asking her how she's doing. What an idiot, right? And then I would go, well, oh. and she would go, hey, I'm fine. What's up? And I'm like, oh, thank God, you know. So I think that it's easy for us to not want to make it uncomfortable for other people. We want to not have it be uncomfortable for us. It's understandable why we kind of back away or why we might self-isolate or whatever. But yes, my sister was able to talk to me. I was able to talk to her. Sometimes I asked a stupid question and she let me know. Sometimes I didn't ask enough questions and she let me know. Whatever, right? It's just we had this ability to talk. We didn't talk about everything, but we talked about enough important stuff that their memories that won't ever leave me. And if she was going to leave her kids, I felt at least in retrospect, at least with more than just her husband and her kids, she was able to talk to at least one other person. She probably talked to multiples about her feelings behind that. And I think that that was an important part of the end of her life journey was to know that a lot of people really cared about the things that were really affecting her on an emotional level and that was a gift that i was given that was something that she was able to to deal with with me and I, and me and with her although it wasn't perfect and we weren't able to talk about everything we were able to talk about a lot more than i've found most people can talk about
1: yeah it's funny i'm thinking when when my dad was sick my dad was sick for about 7 months i vividly remember my good friend coming over my house we were sitting downstairs in the kitchen my dad was in the hospital and my friend, he lost his dad growing up, and he sat me down, and he's like, you know, this is the time where you want to sit down with your dad. My dad wasn't doing well, so, you know, we knew that. I didn't necessarily know that he was going to die, but maybe my friend had better instinct than I did, and, you know, he said this is the time where you sit down with your dad, and you have all the conversations that you think you'll want to have one day. You have those conversations now to make sure that you don't want to look back on you know, this, this unique or this rare opportunity where while he's still here to have those conversations, you know, and I thought in my head, like I was young, I was 20. So I was, I thought, Hey, what do I want to ask my dad? And it's funny too, even I'm thinking, you know, when he said that, but because when you're 20, you have some questions. Now I'm 28. I have different questions. You know, there's different things I'd want to talk about now.
0: Sure. (laughs) But you know what you're so, I mean, listen, it's not, it's not any kind of fortunate thing that you went through and that he went through and losing a parent's is not good, no matter what the circumstance, losing anybody you care about, is not good, no matter what, what the circumstance, but you at least were given some advice that maybe made you do something you wouldn't have done on your own. And as much as it might've been difficult for you to have even only a few conversations where you asked a few questions, maybe you asked a thousand, I don't know. But even if, if you just had that little bit, it's something you're going to draw on for the rest of your life, right? It's something you're going to be able to one day tell your kids about. And you can explain, it just is a whole nother level of connectivity to somebody who is very important in your life that you might not have had if you weren't given that advice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Cancer, without a doubt, is terrible. Wish it upon no one, obviously, but it is a very real part of life, and especially in the way it's impacted my life. I lost my dad when I was 20 and my mom when I was 25. But a lot of the theme that I like to discuss on this show is how tragedy, how grief, how loss how adversity can help shape your life. And really, in my eyes, it can have a very empowering impact. Obviously, you need to work through all the difficulties that are associated with cancer, loss, grief, and all that. But I really do believe, at least in my own circumstances, in losing both my parents, I lost two of the most important people in my life, without Mm -hmm. a doubt. But today, like almost eight years since my dad passed and three-plus years since my mom passed, and I truly am... I'm grateful for all the experience that I've had, the good and the bad, because I feel like it's given me this perspective and the way I view the world today. So I'm curious, I guess, you know, with Mm -hmm. the people that you wrote about in the book, did you find anyone else had, I don't want to necessarily say an appreciation, but more just like came from a place of gratitude where these are the cards that they've been dealt. It's very unfortunate. It's a shitty Mm -hmm. hand, but in spite of what I've I've been dealt, I'm going to make the best of it. Mm -hmm. Did you see anyone who had a more empowering relationship or take after, you know, they lived through something like this?
0: Yeah, it's a great question and and well thought out. And I appreciate you sharing your thoughts behind that. And the answer is yes, everybody in one form or another. Everybody had given them some added perspective or it had given, it had widened their perspective that gave them an appreciation for certain things. We talked earlier about you know, how do you lose the love of your life and then find the love of your life, right? Well, part of what got him through that was that his first wife, they were able to talk about everything, everything. And she finally said to him, listen, you got to go to counseling when I die because you got to have a couple issues we can't solve here, but I've made you into your best you. Like you're going to find somebody and they're going to like get the best Bobby there ever was that's the only thing I'm pissed off about is I did all the work on you <laughs> and somebody else is going to get the benefit of it and he goes you know what no way I'm never gonna, how am I ever going to find somebody after you you were like the perfect person and she said look I know it sucks but you know what you need to be with somebody and you're going to find the right person and it sucks that it's not me and I'm not going to be around here for you. But look how much you've gained. Look at where you've come in your life. And they were able to do that. And when she finally died and he he had already you know, reconciled some things and kind of got, got through just a horrible, nasty negativity of it all, he did find the love of his life. And they keep Brandy's memory alive through every year doing an event in her honor. And he says, you know what? If Brandy were alive, we'd have kids. We'd be married. We'd be as happy, as happy as two people could be. He goes, but that didn't happen. But you want to know something? I freaking love my life. My wife is the best thing that's ever happened in the world. I've been married to her now for eight or nine years. She's the greatest thing in the world. And I, I'm sad that I lost Brandy. My life would have been perfect, but I have a perfect life. Mm -hmm. Like I'm the happiest guy that could ever be. Now it's hard to wrap your brain around that, right? But how much gratitude does he have for what he gained out of that cancer experience? Because he was going to live no matter what, right? Yeah. His wife died. He's living. So why not have the best life possible? And they were able to give him that through their ability to interact. And I think Mm,
1: it's a beautiful story. I heard once, I'm trying to remember who told me exactly, but they said that actually when someone is terminally ill, it's much more difficult for the people who are left on the earth as opposed to the people who pass away and die because, you know, you're sort of left with, at least in in the physical world of what we know, you know, you're left to Mm -hmm. deal and navigate with life after that loss, which is, you know, obviously very difficult. Yeah, it's hard. You see every now and then, like I'm thinking back, I've seen a viral Facebook post where someone who's terminally ill writes a long-winded message saying, you know, these these are not necessarily my regrets, but I should have done more of the things I wanted. I should have taken more chances. I yeah. should have pursued the things I really wanted to. Life is short. Life is fragile. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. And I wish it didn't take something like cancer to see something shock you where you're in a car accident. And you say, wow, I survived. Now I'm going to start to live the real life I really want to live. You know, I wish it didn't take these experiences to wake a lot of people up and realize, hey, life is life is short and you could steer the car in any direction. Mm -hmm. Did you also see a lot of people in this space have like a different take on just the way they view the world as opposed to maybe people who didn't have the same experiences?
0: Yeah, for sure. And. I mean, it's a very insightful question then because everybody had that experience, right? And uh, sometimes it wasn't always for the better, right? Sometimes it, it just proved to them that their best days were behind them and that the joy in their life was going to be over in some sense. So mm-hmm. yeah, that could happen. But really, one of the participants who is an oncologist gave me a great perspective. She said, the human brain is not wired to be able to contemplate in reality, the end of its own existence. And I go, huh? And she said, yeah, we cannot figure out, we can't wrap our brains around the fact that we're one day going to die. She goes, I'm an oncologist. I see people die all the time. She goes, you know why I'm an oncologist? I go, why? She goes, a lot of reasons. But really, one of the reasons is because I figure it'll give me good karma because I don't want to die of cancer. And I go, huh, what? (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, we just can't wrap our brains. We can't wrap our brains around it. And so I think if you lean into those points that you were just talking, those examples that you were given, and you can just somehow try to wrap your brain around the fact that today is today and you're never going to get it back, that you, you got to take some action to just maximize your experience and your relationships. And listen, Dan, I don't know about your experience with your parents, and I don't want to assume anything, but uh, most of the stories from the people I talk about, if it comes down to the end of their life and they're having a conversation with the loved one, there really is only two things that kind of bubble to the top. One is the joy and love for the people that were in their lives that they were able to have meaningful connections with. So they cherish those that bubbled up more than anything else. The other on the negative side that bubbled up was the regrets they had about not forming those meaningful relationships. Why did I fight with my sister and not talk to her for 20 years? Why did I push my son away? You know, why didn't I get closer Mm. to my dad? Like the appreciation for the good, the regret over the bad, over the human connection. Yeah. Right. And so that's why I wanted to write this book to say, look, man, let me teach you how not me teach you let these stories give you some insight into how we can form more meaningful connections with the people we care about so that we could really understand how precious these connections are so that if we're fortunate enough to get to the end of our life and be able to look at it we we have way more joy and appreciation than we do regret over connecting with the people that are in our lives i mm. mean honestly i think that's what it's all about
1: yeah i love that so much and you know i wish Whoever tunes into this can take that, hold that with them and carry with them as they live, as they live their life. I think that knowing you're going to die is one of the most powerful things in the world. Like it's funny hearing you say that about the oncologist and I can totally resonate with like, I think a lot of people live, live their life as if, you know, they'll be here forever as if death is never in the cards. But I really believe that carrying and really holding that fact that you too will die one day and turning it into an introspective conversation with yourself, asking, knowing I too am gonna die, how do I want to spend my limited time on Earth can be very empowering to know to answer, you know, some real questions like, I don't want to fight with this person. It's so stupid because at the end, right. what's the point?
0: What's the point? You know, when I was young, Dan, I don't remember if it was an Ann Rand saying or some uh, somebody I read. They said the decision to spend this moment the way that you're spending it is actually a decision, a thousand decisions to not spend it doing a thousand different things. And I was like, whoa, that makes sense. So every time I spent, I purposely, and we can always choose how we spend every minute of our lives, but when we do make a choice in how we spend our life, it's actually the choice to not do a thousand other things. Mm. That's, that's freaking brilliant, right? It's brilliant because you never get that minute back. So, like you just said, it, can't always. Sometimes you're going to fight with somebody because it's just emotional and that's life and whatever. But sometimes you're going to sit there and go, you know what? I'm going to choose to not spend this moment fighting with that person. I'm going to choose to not be aggravated in line at the grocery store. I'm going to choose to be more polite to the next person. I'm going to choose to eat healthier or whatever it is because that's the thing that I want to do because I'm never going to get this minute back. It's such a we can't always do it. And I didn't start doing it until I got into my late 30s. So the fact that you're even contemplating these things at 28 <laughs> makes me jealous.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. And also a great thing that someone can take with them there. I understand that you cycled to meet mm-hmm. all the, the people you, you interviewed. You cycled from California to New York. Is that, is that right?
0: Well, so I did California kind of zigzagging along the southern part of the United States to Florida. I went through the panhandle of Florida. Then I went down to Tampa to meet uh, one of the book subjects in Tampa, and then uh, visit the Moffitt Cancer Center. Then I went across to Orlando, just north of Orlando, and then zigzagged up to New York. So it was 4,700 miles.
1: Wow. How does all the ultra endurance, how does all that get worked into the book, I guess, your life? Did that start yeah. when your sister was sick or that come about after?
0: No. So I took the bike ride a few years after she had died. And I didn't even start the project. It really didn't even take form in my head until about four or five years after she died, like where I kind of could wrap my brain around what I thought uh, would be a, a worthwhile project. But the bike ride took me, what, 45 days. I talked to people for a couple of years ahead of time. And then it took me a couple of years to write the book. So it was, and then by the time I went back and forth with my editor and the publisher and all of that, I mean, it was a long period of time, right? It was like, it was like five years.
1: But were you already doing like endurance events outside of all this?
0: Oh, no question. And I mean, it's a whole nother series of topics for sure. But <laughs> basically why that bike ride for this book was so important for me is because i found, and maybe your listeners can't identify with this, but I found that my best ability to contemplate and problem solve and develop perspective and really get in tune with myself and my emotions and the people in my life that were important, how I was going to spend my time. The best way to the place where I could go to do that was on long runs and long bike rides and long swims. And so there's something to be said about checking out to read a book or watch a movie or go play frisbee or whatever there's meditate, whatever. But I think endurance athletics gives me a whole nother perspective because when you elect to go run 12 hours in the desert straight you can solve a lot of problems if you're on a 300 mile bike ride you can solve a lot of issues and so the bike ride I went on it hoping it would give me the space to contemplate these stories it also gave me the space to contemplate you know the emotions behind my sister and also the people that I met and those type of things so it's it was a great backdrop for me because I find that space to be very contemplative and creative you know
1: yeah, absolutely. I ran a marathon. That's the most that I've run. Nice.
0: Was it the New York City marathon? New,
1: New York City. Oh, so great. I'm definitely intrigued by doing more endurance events and personally can resonate with. You learn a lot about yourself, you know, when you put yourself out there. And mm-hmm. I think in any athletic endeavor where you have to push your mind, body, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, they all need to sort of work together. I you know, I don't really have that much experience. It relates to endurance events with the exception of the marathon, but I think you learn a lot about yourself. You definitely learn a lot about yourself when you are uh, out there pushing it and you realize that you need that not only can you do a lot more than you think you can, but once you're tired and you start telling yourself, Hey, we need to go a little bit more just so like our listeners know in terms of the endurance events, what have you done?
0: Oh my gosh. I'll give you a list. And then I want to tell you a super quick story that will put an exclamation point on what you just said about that, finding out more about yourself and seeing how far you can push yourself and all of that. So I've done about just under 20 Ironmans. I've done at least 50 runs of 50 miles or longer. I did uh, that 4,700 mile bike ride. I've done four back-to-back marathons. So I, I ran 25 and a half hours, 104 miles straight, 87 mile run 85 mile run i've done 300 mile bike rides you name it i just done tons of stuff right and it's so funny because i was listening to somebody talk yesterday who has done things that make those look like nothing this woman's done like real endurance events and i'm just like huh oh, how do you do a six day run in the Gobi desert you know like whatever but everybody everybody has their limit but let me tell you a super quick story dan that'll that'll give you a, a exclamation point on what you just said the very first endurance event that I did was an 87 mile rollerblade race from Athens, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia. So strap on the rollerblades, the thing had been going on for like 30 years. I had no business being there. I'm not an athlete. I still was smoking at the time. I was still a smoker. What the hell is that? <laughs> and I talked myself into going to do this 87 mile rollerblade race. Okay. And about 35 miles in is this crazy hill. And I'm starting to make my way up this hill and I'm do- I'm toast. I'm done. I still have 50 miles to go, but I'm literally toast. And I'm sweating white because it's so salty. This It's hot out and it's sweating white. And I'm leaned over on my knees just going, I'm, I'm dead. Like I'm never going to go any further. And then I, I see this line being created by my sweat on the asphalt. And I did exactly what you just said. I just said, you know what, dude, if you quit right now, it's fine. But then you're going to, you will have already known everything about what you could accomplish right? But if you just just figure out a way to go one step further, you're going to learn something new about yourself. And then another step and another step and another step. And if you ever could make it another mile or another 10 miles, or maybe even make it to the finish, imagine what you're going to discover. And I went, oh, that's kind of intriguing. So I just figured out a way to keep going. And I stayed just ahead of the sag wagon, right? So they didn't come pick me up because, you know, there's time cutoffs or whatever. And I made it to the finish. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if I wasn't on a quest to see what I could accomplish, you know? Yeah. And I bet that right. felt real good. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're at the marathon and you're at mile 20 and you just want to just stop. You just want to stop. You're just like, dude, stop. Like it's too much pain. Right. And then you go, nah, I kind of got to get to that finish line. You discover a lot along the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You learn. You learn that I think you're capable of way more than you think you are.
0: My favorite quote about a marathon, it happens to be about the marathon at the end of an Ironman, but my favorite quote and it stuck with me from the second I read it is a marathon is 20 miles of hope and 6.2 miles of reality.
1: <laughs>
0: and i like, oh yeah, well, I want to find out what's in that reality, dude.
1: You I'm know? gonna text that to my uh my buddy who's running the New York Marathon after that this.
0: The first 20 miles, holding the last 6.2 is reality. It's just it. I could take I could dissect
1: that for a year. That's good. Yeah. Well, David, we could start to wrap up this show. Uh, the last question I like to ask all my guests is: Bits of Gold is all about moving forward in the face of adversity and building your dream life. What would be your bits of gold on how to build a life you love?
0: I'll go back to that idea of just when you can, like literally when you can just make a conscious effort to say, this is the thing I'm choosing to do. And if you hold yourself to that accountability, like, like I rarely anymore say I, I have to do something, right? Cause you really don't have to, you don't have to cook your kids dinner. You don't have to go into work. You don't have to wait in line at the store. You don't have to do any of those things. You kind of get to, and I'd say that for me, if somebody would have told me that early on in life, I probably would have accomplished a lot more. I might have been a lot happier doing the things I was doing because I'd come at it from I get to do it rather than I have to do it. And so if you get to do it, that, that's a choice. And if you're making the choice, then you're consciously saying, I'd rather be doing this than anything else. So for me, that that's kind of the thing that drives me. And I'm a good, you know, close to 30 years older than you, right? Right. And and I'd say that it's that kind of thinking that lets me believe, even being 30 years older than you, that my best days are still ahead of me, right? Because i I got a lot of things I want to get done. And so I'm going to choose to get to do a lot of stuff, you know?
1: I love that. Where can people connect with you, buy the book, and uh, just learn more about what you're up to?
0: Sure. Well, thanks, Dan. I keep forgetting to mention this, but the book, 100% of the proceeds are going to support the cancer organizations and other nonprofits that were chosen by the book participants. So 100% of the proceeds go to them. I'm just hoping to raise a little bit of money and more importantly, kind of equip people to form more meaningful connections. So the book can be bought anywhere, wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, wherever. It's doing really well, which is which is great. And if they want a signed copy, somebody wants to buy a signed copy, they can go to my website. It's cycleoflives.org. If they want to just jump on Amazon, the Audible's coming out very shortly. By the time this is produced, it'll probably be out. So yeah, you could get the the ebook, the Audible, or the regular book um, pretty much anywhere books are sold.
1: That's awesome. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're hey, welcome, Danny. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share with a friend, subscribe. I love your podcast, Mr. Gold.